This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you as we struggle to get through these winter months here in Connecticut. Um, On today's show, I've really been looking forward to today's show because our guest in the second half of today's show is going to be Dr. Padmanabhan Premkumar. Dr. Premkumar is the president of the Hartford Healthcare Medical Group, a job he just took over. But I really want to talk about telemedicine. It's something you've all heard about. We've talked about it on the show. And there are so many different modalities to it. And how effective is it? You know, we started using it a lot during COVID when people couldn't come to the office and we wanted to still manage their care remotely. So suddenly it thrust everybody into the use of telemedicine. Well, now it's here. And the question is, how effective is it? And we really want to talk to Dr. Premkumar about that and how it's being used by the physicians locally and especially at Hartford HealthCare. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that chat with him to really hopefully get some clarity for all of us on the use of telemedicine. Um, The COVID positivity rate in Connecticut is now 9%. Last week it was 12%. So the numbers are coming down. Influenza is still pretty prominent. And and don't forget, the 9% is a conservative number, but it's a number we've been going by here. But what's interesting is that I've been hearing about, and this is purely anecdotal, is that a lot of people have been testing negative at home several times before they test positive. So they come down with an illness, not sure what it is, do the right thing, test themselves, negative for COVID, but still have symptoms, and then, you know, a couple of days later, test positive. So I'm not sure if that's really part of this new mutation and how it behaves. One of the things we know about its behavior is that it is very, very highly transmissible, but there are many fewer fatalities. So, you know, I always hear the controversy over, well, they're saying there's so many of these fatalities, but these people were dying anyhow. And that's not the case, okay? That, that's just not the case. Now, what is true is many of the fatalities have some other underlying condition, like diabetes, obesity, heart disease. But those are not terminal conditions necessarily at that point in time. So you have to understand that getting sick with COVID and stressing your body to try and deal with this infection that's now in your bloodstream has now made everything worse. Now, granted, there are some people who coincidentally have COVID. I'll I'll agree to that. But by and large, when we look at these fatalities, these are people who have conditions that are well-managed 
and now that management is thrown into chaos. Here's another thing. Here's another hint I think I should share with you. A lot of things have changed when we go to doctor's offices now, and I've noticed that in outpatient offices. So my practices uh, where I work are at Hartford HealthCare in, in an office, in their medical office building, and at University of Connecticut in the Musculoskeletal Institute and also our office and stores. In those institutions, in those buildings, you have to wear a mask. But what I've noticed is you will go to other practices and a mask is optional. And it's even optional for the staff. So I stress to you the importance of knowing where you are. So you're in an off you're in a doctor's office. Who goes to a doctor's office? Hmm, probably people who are sick. Now you might be there for a well visit yourself. But there are people there who are sick. So uh, I prefer that the people I'm around in a doctor's office are wearing a mask. And we shouldn't be shy about asking them to put a mask on. And if they don't, if they refuse, well, you know, that just speaks a lot. Because we know masks work. And you know that you're in an office based on science and good medicine. Right. So that's a real issue. But I think we shouldn't be shy about asking people um, if they're going to provide health care or if I'm going to be in a room with them for a certain period of time to ask them to put a mask on. I think that that is very reasonable and appropriate. Um, one of the things I wanted to chat about, and, and I just touched on it last week a little bit, because now we have legalized recreational marijuana for about 10 years now we have uh, approved the use of marijuana for pain and and medical uses of marijuana and um, what's interesting about that is as as we've looked at that uh, we've we're trying to figure out is there any benefit to doing it about so in a recent study about one-third of chronic pain patients have said they use cannabis to treat their pain. Not purely use cannabis, but in addition to other medications. And this was a survey of about 2,000 people in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And what, what we've learned is that these people are using it as a supplement. The, the, and it may be effective. Some people have said that it's been a, they've been able to cut back on their use of opiates or cut back, not eliminate, but their other pain medications. And the problem is, when you talk to pain management specialists, is that may be well and good, but there's so much variability. We don't know how safe or how effective it is. Um, when you think of that many people saying that it's reduced their need for other medications, you say, wow, it must be doing some good. But the fact is that the marijuana plant has been used for thousands of years. So there's nothing new about that. But there are also many thousands of different elements in it, these so-called cannabinoids. So the problem here, then the struggle is to find out which of the cannabinoids are effective, which are not. And when you 
smoke one of these things or take one of these uh, gummies or something, you really don't know what you're getting. And there's no consistency between what you're buying. So the point here is that you really need to learn more about the dose and the strain of the cannabinoid if we're going to have any clear knowledge of how effective or safe it is. And it really speaks to us doing more research in this area. And I think that uh, I personally feel that it's somewhat premature uh, for us to be saying that there is good medicine here in using it uh, without that data, and especially that safety data. People are always ready to come down on the Food and Drug Administration. You know, they're releasing things that might not be safe. Well, your state is approving marijuana that may not be safe. Um, so we need to take that all into consideration because these are medications. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, then we're going to be back to really talk about an interesting story surrounding this day in medicine. And in the second half of our program, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Prem Kumar about the use of telemedicine and how effective it is and what we can expect in our regular medical care. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. We're back on Healthy Rounds. Straighten up and fly right. And we're uh, this day in medicine, uh, January 28th, 1949, was when Dr. John Enders uh, reported that he had successfully cultured the polio virus, and he reported that in Science, the journal Science. That was uh, in 1949, and, and this was a critical step in developing a vaccine for polio. Um, the first vaccine being the Salk vaccine, the injectable vaccine in 1955, and then the Sabin vaccine two years later in 1957. And Enders actually went on to later develop the measles vaccine. So he really was uh, a pioneer and somebody on the cutting edge in developing vaccines to keep us safe. But, you know, I was looking into it. Uh, you know, I, I treat quite a few patients in the past. Uh, fewer now, thank God. Uh, but people who had had polio and especially what was termed post-polio syndrome of uh, people developing symptoms of polio after having it many years ago. And they thought... There, there was a lot of discussion in the 80s that had these people become reinfected with polio. And what we found through our research and when I was at the University of Michigan and looking at it is that it was really just a function of aging. The polio virus attacks the cells in the spinal cord that go to the muscles, that the motor nerves. So it's a motor neuron disease like ALS, except... It doesn't kill you, and it was self-limited. Once the infection stopped, you had this weakened and atrophied uh, muscle. What's interesting is that they believe that some of the things about polio really go back to ancient Egypt, where um, they had images of children walking with canes and having withering limbs. Um, the first clinical descriptions were in 1789, uh, by Dr. Underwood in the Great Britain, and uh, was formally recognized in 1840 by uh, Dr. Jacob Hine in Germany. But it was really in the late 19th, early 20th century where we would deal with these 
frequent epidemics. And what it would do is thousands of people um, would be infected with um, the virus. And many died because it could affect the motor nerves going to respiratory muscles. So we always saw people with iron lungs to breathe because those muscles could not be innervated and be nourished by the nerves going to them. And many more people, many more than thousands, were crippled by it. But in the 80s, we started to see people come back with new symptoms of polio. And what we found was that what happens is we're all given a, a certain amount of these nerve cells in the spinal cord. Um, say, just for argument's sake, 100. Everybody gets 100 of these cells. And when you get polio, it attacks these cells when you're young. So you may only have 50. But 50 was enough to at least function. You may have atrophy of the muscle, but you could still move your leg. But what we also know is as we age, we naturally drop that number down. So what would happen is where you may start with 100 and drop to 75 due to aging, people who only had 50 dropped to 25 and now lost the use of a limb. So it really was not a function of the infection coming back. And that was a big point in terms of treatment and knowledge about polio. So something we uh, like to think about and, and learn from, um, from polio and viruses and uh, especially everything that has gone into saving the lives of so many people um, with those vaccines. Uh, one of the things to talk about, I've, I've talked about this on the show before, the importance of us staying active, right? Um, you've heard the saying, sitting is the new smoking. And uh, a recent article in the Journal of the American College of Sports Medicine really talked about um, taking a short stroll every half hour even a five-minute stroll. So when you're at work and you're sitting for a long period of time, this is not a healthy thing to do. And they found that people who took a five-minute walk every half hour reduced their blood sugar level by 60%, and their blood pressure also dropped. Now, five-minute walk every half hour, that's a lot of walking and probably not very efficient, and I'm sure uh, your boss wouldn't like that. But by the same token... Uh, one minute every hour also reduced blood pressure. So maybe instead of sending someone an email, you go over and have a conversation with them. Another way, in an article just published in the journal Nature, talked about one to two minute bursts of exercise. Now, I'm not talking about doing a wind sprint, but instead of taking an elevator, maybe it's time to take the stairs. And just that that sudden burst of exercise three times a day really cut back cardiovascular disease by 50%. Now, I typically use a stand-up desk. I like to stand up. It's, it's, it's actually more comfortable for me uh, in general. But even that, so I always feel like, well, I'm standing at my desk. I have an adjustable desk I could work at. And... That's great. I'm doing the right thing. But even that is not that helpful, although it's more helpful for your back, right? When you think about it, sitting 
puts so much strain on the low back. Your arms are in an unnatural position. Your neck is bent over. It's just not good. So although working in a stand-up position is better, it's also better to move. So even that, it's a good advice to try and move around from place to place rather than just standing in one position. And I've seen more and more people working at this. A lot of offices have now adapted. I even see this at UConn now. Uh, many people have um, these uh, ergonomic specialists that have come and in, installed these things to their desk where you have the option of sitting and then you push a button and uh, the computer rises up so you can work standing up. So I want people to keep that in mind. That's something we could do to really uh, promote better health uh, for ourselves and those around us. And it it also gets rid of that, you know, that late afternoon fatigue that you start feeling um, as the day wears on if you can just do a little bit of walking. Uh, so, uh, you know, just finding an excuse to be able to walk over to somebody or walk around the office or go to another floor and not necessarily stand there waiting for uh, an elevator and uh, squeezing into that with everyone else. Uh, the stairs are, in many cases, very safe, uh, well lit, and a great, great place to get some exercise. So we're going to uh, take a break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Prem Kumar, who's president of Hartford Healthcare Medical Group. And we really want to talk about telemedicine, something we've all become familiar with in some regard, and how we follow up and get our medical care, especially when we're traveling. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Gotcha. When Madame Pompadour was on a ballroom floor, said all the gentlemen, obviously. Welcome back to Healthy Man Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have as my guest, Dr. Padmanabhan Prem Kumar. Dr. Prem Kumar is the president of Hartford Healthcare Medical Group. Um, he's an internal medicine specialist. And um, Prem Kumar, hey, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tony. How are you? All right, pretty good. Hey, listen, let's start out. Let's talk about the Hartford Healthcare Medical Group. Um, how many people are in the medical group? I know I'm in it, but I, I never realized how many, how many people are in the medical group itself. Uh, I mean, in, in totality, we have probably more than 1,800 providers across the state, uh, Tony. Wow. Okay. So what's the new job like? Uh, it's been great. Um, uh, understanding our footprint and all of the various communities that we serve, uh, we provide a complete total continuum of care and learning all of the various folks that serve all of our patients has been, has been a wonderful experience, visiting our practices, uh, meeting our patients. It's been a great experience in the first month. Wow, that's great to hear. But let's get to, I really wanted to get on this topic of telemedicine um, for a while um, because it's so vast. Can you uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about some of the history behind telemedicine? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think first from a definition perspective, I, simplistically, if you, if you look at the World Health Organization, you know, telehealth is probably defined as just health from a distance, uh, simplistically, right? So if you expand that, it's sort of remote healthcare um, and consultation to patients where the providers and patients probably aren't there together 
at the same place at the same time. Um, this day and age, you know, if you start from house calls to now urgent care clinics, I think on-demand healthcare is becoming the hot commodity. I think the modern patient looking for 24-7 access to their providers. Uh, but the advent of telemedicine, I think, is much longer than what people actually think. I think it actually started first half of the 20th century. I think if you look in the 1940s in Pennsylvania, I think radiologists were exchanging images 20-plus miles across multiple townships. Uh, that's expanded, I think, if you go into the 1950s and 60s. I think University of Nebraska, probably trendsetters, set up two-way televisions, exchanged in medical information to medical students across their campuses. And then it expanded outside of healthcare, I would say, went into NASA, Department of Defense, uh, Home Health Services, into the 60s and 70s. And then now I think you're seeing the extent of uh, telemedicine beyond urban locations. We're going into rural areas, long-term care facilities where there's a lack of access to healthcare in those locations. And that's sort of, I think, where telemedicine has landed now in 2023. You know, it's really amazing because I guess I was practicing telemedicine uh, 35 years ago because you'd take a phone call, right? I mean, right. Um, people would call you all the time. You didn't necessarily bill for it, um, but you put a note in the chart that you had this conversation and, and you changed this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, it's recently uh, become not only more popular since COVID, but it's really come into the press uh, because we have so much new technology, Right and what technology can be used or can't be used. Um, can you talk a little bit about the technology behind? I mean, everybody has FaceTime these days, right? But that's not necessarily an acceptable way of doing it from what I understand. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. I think if you, if you touch on the various types of telehealth, I think the first is live video, and I'll touch on live video to answer your question. The second major mechanism is store and forward, where recorded video or images can be submitted. And then the third is, I think, sort of this remote patient monitoring, which is the next um, um, foray into digital technology, which is basically the ability to sit in a patient's home, for example, obtain vital signs, blood pressure, blood sugars, and transmit it to the providers. And then the last is, I think, simplistically audio visits. It's essentially two-way communication using a telephone, for example. This day and age, uh, um, from a video perspective, I think uh, it's, it's beyond uh, FaceTime or any Google device that you may use. It's connecting to an electronic medical rec record because there has to be some protection from a health information perspective. And so that's why whether you use any EMR, whether each uh, healthcare system has, such as uh, Epic or, or anything else, that's sort of uh, the best way to perform telehealth this day and age. Uh so let's talk a little bit about the devices, um, because I find that fascinating. So um, I think what you're saying is so you could do a telehealth visit um, with the patient and have monitoring devices already in the home um, to give you like live information. That's correct. So this is. Yep. Go ahead, please. No. Is that kind of like, no, you know, we see all these ads for things with the iPhone, right? So yeah. people put their fingers on a new pad, the cardia thing, and they could transmit their heart rate. So we're talking about things like that? That's exactly correct. Uh, you can have pulse oximeters uh, that are connected uh, via an iPad or an iPhone that transmit information. Similarly, blood pressure, similarly, blood sugars that you take with your devices at home that can transmit information either a through a wire or via Bluetooth directly to those devices that can be sent to your provider. So that's the new age. 
Um, you know, there's care respiratory, you know, our COPD patients, you have continuous monitoring for pulse oximetry at home, uh, exercise monitoring that they can do. So many advents in many different specialties this day and age. Let's talk a little bit about the restrictions, because that's one of the things uh, I've been doing telehealth for a very long time, because many of my patients are athletes who travel a great deal and other performers. So if they need to be seen, it's not convenient for them to necessarily get on a plane. They'll usually uh, fly in here, see me um, in the office, um, either at uh, Hartford HealthCare or UConn, and then they go about their job, which is traveling. So a lot of times our follow-ups are done via telemedicine. Um, And I'm told that, so what are the restrictions to doing that? Because I know that when you do this as an initial visit, you need to be licensed in the state you do it in. Um, But I'm told that if you establish care and then do it as a follow-up, as in my case, that you don't have to be licensed in whatever state they're in, because it could be any other state or country in in many cases. Um, How does that work? How do these restrictions work? Yeah, so I think um, you're sort of talking about billing and reimbursement restrictions. So if you you talk about billing and reimbursement requirements for telehealth, it actually varies depending on payers, insurers, and, and different geographic locations. You know, the fundamental concept, I think, Tony, is you should be licensed or legally permitted to practice in the states where you or your patient are physically located. However, there are some nuances to that, to that statement. Maybe it might be easier for, uh, for our listeners if we go through specific scenarios. You are right in that Please. you have an established patient um, and, and um, uh, you had an initial in-person visit. There are definitely um, uh, uh, current rules and regulations that allow you to permit telehealth. So, for example... If your patient was in the state of Connecticut, established patient with you, but travels, let's say, temporarily to another state, the question is, are you able to perform telehealth? The answer is yes. Now, Yeah, let's at- say Florida. A lot of our patients go to Florida, right? They, they're winter, right? Yeah. They're in Florida now. Yeah, and Florida, for example, has some um, uh, laws after COVID where it temporarily allows providers to perform telehealth who are licensed in other states, and you don't have to be licensed in Florida, for example. So there, you're allowed oh. to perform that. The other uh, scenarios could be, well, what if your patient permanently moves out of state but it's established with you, could you do telehealth? That becomes a little bit more difficult because my first statement falls into play, which is, are you licensed and legally permitted to uh, uh, provide care for you and your patient uh, where they're geographically located? We may actually say it's better for the patient to to seek a care provider that's, that's located in the state. The third example you could think of is, what if you as a provider move to a different state and uh, temporarily. There again, licensing requirements co- come into play. Um, state uh, state uh, requirements in terms of where is your patient located, those are the nuances uh, that happen. But in general, I think the rules and regulations are a little bit lax now, but they're still state to state, but many states are rolling back. But I think you're still uh, allowed uh, and permitted to perform telehealth uh, for an established patient, at least in the state of Connecticut, who travel elsewhere. Okay, that that clarifies a lot of things uh, for me, um, and I think um, for a lot of providers who are involved, because we we never, it's hard to get a straight answer on this. I'm finally getting some clarity here, so I I really appreciate it, because, um, you know, one of the other things we think about is reimbursement. Um, And, you know, specifically in my case, I'm typically um, 
reimbursed by the organization. So um, the organization will, uh, for whatever it is, will pay Hartford Healthcare for my services, and I don't get paid for a specific visit. My job is to keep that those athletes healthy. But in the case where someone is doing a service and billing a code, what are those kinds of restrictions now? Yeah, so uh, great question, uh, Tony. I think uh, start with, I think, the telehealth legislation in Connecticut, right? So the state of Connecticut passed their legislation called an act concerning telehealth, which is Public Act 21-9 um, on May the 10th, 2021. And that actually extends to June the 30th, 2023, which is later this year. So we will see what telehealth uh, local legislation looks like past June. But the act actually allows for a lot of flexibility for telehealth offerings, and it actually requires insurance coverages um, to cover these services. And under these legislation, the insurance companies must provide appropriate reimbursement for telehealth visits comparable to in-person visits. But if you look at an organization such as ours and said, well, well, Dr. Prem Kumar, how does that apply to these insurance companies and how they, they partner with, with large organizations, a lot of it is determined by rates that are determined by national policy and what your contracted rates are for a face-to-face -face visit. That's how uh, the reimbursement occurs. But in general, based on the rules and regulation in Connecticut, appropriate reimbursement comparable to in-person visits for these telemes uh, telehealth visits is what I would say. So uh, taking that a step further, and, and when we talk about how effective is telemedicine? You know, they're, they're trying to do studies and, and figure this out. And, and I think they have a lot of obstacles because there are so many, as you've pointed out quite well, there are so many different ways of doing telemedicine. And often telemedicine is mixed with in-person visits. Yep. For example, if I have a patient who is stable on multiple sclerosis, I need to see them every six months to renew medication. Um, for uh, their multiple sclerosis, that's an insurance requirement. Uh, I will typically see them in person once a year, and that six-month visit is done by telemedicine. To me, uh -huh. that's very effective medicine. And uh, I think for especially a patient who is working, okay, and, and very active. But let's look at the flip side of it. We have many patients who can't, um, specifically in the area of movement disorders, Parkinsonian patients, and uh, people where it's a real struggle to get out of the house, arrange transportation and things like that. Um, uh, so in, in my narrow world, I see it as being effective. How do you see it and how do insurers see it globally? Is this an effective way of administering health care? Uh, that's a tough question and, and a good question, Tony. I think... I think we are evolving, I think from a legislation perspective, to truly determine efficacy since 2020 to where we are today. I, I think that providers and patients are showing that there is definitely benefit to telemedicine in a multitude of different arenas. So if you look at where it started to where we are today, the current places where telemedicine is being used, so if you look at urgent care, sick visits, you know, respiratory illnesses, minor, uh, minor uh, issues such as, uh, you know, bronchitis, um, you know, upper respiratory infections. If you look at post-acute care, which is patients who are transitioned out of the hospital to home, and you're using remote patient monitoring to check on their vitals, to make sure they're doing well 
seven to 10 days after they've been transitioned out of the hospital setting. Hospice care, for example, you know, patients who are being managed remotely, it, it's showing you that there is definite value. I think from a payer perspective, their lens may be a little bit different in terms of what settings to use it in and what settings not to use it in. But that's, I think, where uh, as you look at the public health emergency, which, which sort of runs out maybe December 2024, and CMS and, and federal regulations are going to now look to where we are going to go. They're going to look at the context of where we are giving care, uh, how are patients being managed, and where, where we will go in the future. I will tell you that in an elderly aging population where chronic disease management is going to be the burden from a healthcare system perspective, I don't think we can get away from not providing telehealth. So I think the future is a combination of legislation and payer and provider all working together in one form or fashion to deliver telehealth, and they're gonna has, there has to be reimbursement that sort of fits within that methodology. I hope I made sense there. Yeah, you did very, very clearly. Um, but let's flip things a little bit um, because we've talked about the patient side of telemedicine. But, you know, I first started uh, becoming familiar with telemedicine when we had stroke codes, right? When, you know, we finally had TPA and a neurologist had to examine the patient to see if TPA was appropriate or now even clot retrieval. And these decisions have to be made within minutes. So suddenly we were using telemedicine. They were telemedicine companies uh, cropping up all over the place, but um, we used it effectively in Hartford and, and still use it um, and in other places. Um, you know, I, I don't see that going away because th that's a life-saving decision that has to be made within minutes and certainly not enough time to get a physician to the hospital. Um, the, how do you see that? Is that um, pretty much safe for the future? Um, I, I think... Uh... More to come there, Tony. I think the I think that telehealth, at least in the outpatient setting, has has definitely shown benefit, and and uh, there's rules and guidelines that are built in. On the inpatient and the acute care side, whether it's hospital to hospital or whether it's location based, meaning Dr. Alessi is located in Hartford, but there's a rural location in Connecticut where his services may be desired. I think there's benefit there. I would say that uh, that currently it's safe. I would say, again, the future, I think, is 2024 and beyond. I think that, um, that likely rules and regulations may allow us to, to evolve to a better place in an acute care setting. I, I just don't see how, um, I think, community hospitals, large tertiary care centers, now how care, care is being provided, time is of the essence, whether it's cardiac or neuro, neurology or other services, where I, I really think that in the future is uh, telemedicine in those locations. To make life-changing um, decisions such as medications or getting a helicopter to transfer a patient for a potential emergent surgeries, I just don't see how that goes away. I do think that leg legislation and, and uh, regulations there are going to loosen over the next couple of years. And currently with COVID and PHE, uh, public health emergency, which is allowing some of these waivers to kick in, I think it's going to become standard of care a year or two from now. Looking at it from a physician standpoint, uh, I have a good friend. I'm going to give you an example. A good friend who years ago, she had a, a wonderful neurology practice, but she was a solo practice, which was hard to do, right? All these requirements, uh, you know, electronic health record, staff requirements, things like that. So she decided to get rid of everything, 
sold her building, sold her practice, and went to work for Physicians on Call, POC, uh, a well-known company nationally. She's a neurologist and would do, you know, stroke emergencies and inpatient all from her home through telemedicine. And has said that she'd never been happy. She has never been happy. She's been doing it for years now. Um, do you see young physicians just going straight into that? In other words, after they've finished their training, whether it be in specialty training or in, in internal medicine, just saying, listen, I, I really don't want to have an office. I want, you know, I have a young family or whatever. Do you see uh, physicians opting for a telemedicine career? Uh, two separate parts to your question. I think the first part to your question is um, I, I'm sort of old school in my thinking. I think that providers who evolve to do telemedicine should at least have um, a, a good bit of experience with in-person and managing disease and conditions, seeing patients face-to-face. -face. I think, as you know, Tony, you cue into um, a good bit of history that people tell you, and you cue into what a diagnosis and treatment based on what you've seen, your experiences, and what you've read. And if you don't have that, it makes it very difficult for you to connect with your patient in that setting. With that being said, your second part is, you're talking about young providers potentially transitioning away from in-person to, to telehealth. We are seeing a shift there. But again, I would advocate to say uh, uh, at least a balance between in-person to telehealth, because that way then uh, you're approaching patient care in that fashion and giving the patients truly what they deserve and trying to get them to where care needs to be the right place at the right time, which is one of the restrictions for telemedicine, right? So if you look at the restrictions, you need to truly, as a provider, need to know what is their past medical history, what are the chief complaints, and then what is the standard of care in that setting. If the standard of care is an in-person visit, telehealth for that specific patient probably doesn't make sense unless there's no other recourse. So that's why, absolutely, I think we're seeing a shift, but I think it's a right provider, right time, right context is what I'd say. Well, Prem Kumar, you hit the nail on the head, because even in the case of my friend, who used it as an example, um, she has opted to start to do locums as she did it. So she would go um, do telemedicine, but she would spend a week, a month, actually seeing patients in different areas. Um, and it's probably why uh, when she presented me with the opportunity, I didn't take it um, because um, I do enjoy being in the room with the patients and their families. Um, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today. And really, thank you for taking a leadership role. It's not an easy job, that's for sure, um, leading 1,800 um, physicians and other providers. Um, so I want to thank you. Thank you for taking a leadership role, and thank you for everything um, you do for uh, the patients in our community. Uh, well, uh, Tony, we're here for our patients in our communities. Uh, happy to serve. Um, I think this is what we all signed up for, right? So thank you for the time this morning. and. Uh, if you ever need me back, I'm happy to join. Sounds great. Thank you. Take care. Uh, that was Dr. Padmanabhan Prem Kumar, the president of uh, the Hartford Healthcare Medical Group. Uh, so many thanks to him and, and the folks that really made the connection uh, for me to get him on the air. Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board for me today. Uh, Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be discussing eye care again, but uh, we're going to have Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford on. Um, she has been a big supporter of our program, but 
always brings with her some new information, and and there's a lot going on. So she's going to spend some time with us next Saturday. If you have questions in advance for Dr. Ratchford, you can get them to me at info at alessimd.com, or if you have any questions regarding today's program. Uh, If you missed part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast and download it on odyssey.com or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.